Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of waters of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. We come to uh, chapter 16, and uh, chapter 16 is not a uh, chapter in the Bible that 
that you really come to with a lot of joy. Um, there is a, it's a chapter that you come to with a sense of settled conviction that we're thankful that God is in control. And I come to a, a chapter like chapter 16 and I realize in the uh, three hours that we've got ahead of us that I'm never going to cover everything that uh, three, oh, maybe 30 minutes. I'm never going to cover everything that's maybe running through your mind and even that's going through my mind. And so we're just going to drop in on a few things along the way. But I do want to remind us all that the book of Revelation is given to us to give us a glimpse of the divine orientation of things. To give us a glimpse of heaven's perspective of the world in which we live. To help us understand um, uh, disasters in our world, earthquakes, diseases, um, conflicts, those kinds of things. To uh, remind us that this world is just not a physical world. It is a world that is full of spiritual realities. And we even see that in this text here of demonic... Uh, influence that comes about the world that manipulates the world to uh, and seduces the world to come against the, the people of God. And so we, we realize that um, it's a book that's necessary. It's a book that gives us answers to questions that the world doesn't give us answers to. Uh, I was um, uh, thinking about this question, how will the world end? And if you go and type that in in Google, you'll find a whole number of explanations for how the world will end. But you will never find, you won't find one of these secular sites at all referring to what the Bible describes as the end of the world. You will find environmentalists that will tell us that we are heading for a climatic crisis that will bring about our, the end of our world. Stephen Hawking says that it's going to go up in a great big fireball. Uh, we have politicians who are, are telling us that the world is going to end if we're not careful in a nuclear holocaust. And so we have those that are um, sort of on the nuclear watch and we have so much that is raised and talked about regarding that. We have astronomers who suggest to us that uh, the world is going to come to an end through a great meteor that's going to come from uh, the universe somewhere, smash through the Earth's atmosphere, hit the Earth, and, and, uh, and the Earth as we know it will dissolve. Um, I think there's even a, a movie called Deep Impact that uh, describes, um, from Hollywood's perspective, the meteor that destroys the world. And then we have Hollywood. It has numerous descriptions of how the world is going to end. And one of the top on the list is an alien invasion. That out of nowhere, aliens are going to come and they're going to take over the world and they're going to cannibalize the world. But thank goodness for Ethan Hawke and thank goodness for Bruce Willis and these guys that are going to save the day at the end of the world. The Bible tells us the world is going to end differently. The Bible tells us that the world is going to end on the day of the Lord God Almighty when Jesus Christ returns. And this is part of the description of the end of the world as it begins to describe now the third cycle of judgment. We've heard about the seals, we've um, heard about the trumpets, and now we read about the seven golden bowls. This is the final go around of a description of how this world is going to come to a conclusion. Remember these seals and trumpets and bowls are meant to uh, describe the same reality from different perspectives. There's an intensification in that perspective. We have the seals, which deal with a quarter of the world. We have the, the trumpets, which deal with a third of the world. We have the bowls, which deal with all of the world. There's a temptation to try to say that the bowls are stuck really at the very end of the last days, but there is a reality in which the bowls are already even now being poured out. And the fullness of God's wrath is falling on individuals and on certain kingdoms even before the final fullness of the wrath of God comes at the end of the last days. It's important though that we see these cycles as recapitulations and as an intensification as each cycle is reiterated to us. 
There's another thing that I want us to keep in mind as we uh, come to chapter 16, and particularly the book of Revelation. We really run into trouble with the book of Revelation when we try and understand it literally. I have been amazed uh, going through it again and again to uh, see the interpretations that some come up with when they try and describe these things literally. And they try and fit this into it and that into that. And, and at the end of the day, you come up with the most bizarre picture possible. And of course, the book of Revelation then becomes confusing. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is given to us in signs and symbols. And it's important that we understand that it is written in signs and symbols. And we know that signs and symbols are not meant to be taken literally. That symbols often point to a reality, but they are not the reality themselves. Again, symbols point to a reality, but they are often not the reality themselves. If you are a fan of political cartoons, you understand this, that political cartoons, a great political cartoonist, they are amazing because they can take signs and symbols and they can, they can say just uh, with almost a, a million things with this amazing picture that they draw. Because the signs and the symbols, uh, they resonate with us and we understand them. We know they're talking about so much more than a particular symbol that they have portrayed. I was thinking about this, I'm trying to understand it or trying to help you understand it. Um, we take the U.S. flag, for instance. The U.S. flag is stripes and stars and uh, red, white and blue. And we understand it to be a, a literal piece of cloth that is designed that way. But we understand that it is much more than a piece of cloth with stars and stripes and colors. And you get that sense when all of a sudden you have a group of people who decide that they're going to protest and they take the flag and they stomp on it and they burn it and people around them get all caught up in anger and emotion. Those who have fought for the country or those who have lost children that have fought for the country or those who understand what the country stands for. And you realize that that flag stands for so much more than just a piece of cloth. It's a symbol that describes a whole country and a whole way of living and a whole approach to a lot of things. Think about Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 5 as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Now we will talk about, we sang about that song, we will see, we will see. Now when we enter heaven, we're not going to be greeted by a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, are we? No. You, you can be sure of that. <laughs> I've all been, no, I won't say the author. No, we're going, to be, we're going to be greeted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, uh, who is man in human flesh, and the seven eyes represent his unimaginable wisdom, and the seven horns represent his unimaginable power, and we'll see in his hands and in his side and in his feet the scars of his death as he died as a lamb that, as though he were slain before the foundation of the world. But we will see the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we understand, do we not, that the book of Revelation is written in symbols. And again, those symbols point to a reality, but they are not the reality themselves. And so we have three points from uh, chapter 16. We'll get through them um, one way or the other, and they won't answer all your questions, but I hope they just drop us into a few issues. The first one is simply the truth about judgment. There's a lot of judgment that is described in Revelation chapter 16. Isaiah refers to the wrath of God in, in a way that I think we would um, do well to think about. He calls it a strange work. He calls it a disturbing task. 
In other words, even the prophets recognize that the, the wrath of God, though just and though righteous, is, is something that, that we, we ought not to be comfortable with. And John takes us through the wrath of God one more time as he describes these seven bowls. You'll notice that the seven bowls are almost identical to the seven trumpets in the ground that they cover, the first four different parts of the earth. The fifth one um, uh, deals with um, uh, uh, evil. The sixth one deals with the Euphrates. And the seventh one deals with the coming of God. But there's a greater intensity in the bowls than over the wrath. And so how do we understand the judgment of God? Well, first of all, uh, it says in Revelation 16 that it comes from God himself. It comes out of the holy place. Notice in verse 1, he says there that I heard a loud voice from the temple calling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. I want us to be assured and understand that the wrath of God is not a, a random thing that we don't know where it comes from. It's called the wrath of God for a reason. It comes from his very presence. It comes from his throne. He is in control of it. He directs it. He empowers it. He sets the limits on it. He sets the parameters on it. Secondly, the judgment of God that we read in Revelation in uh, particular is in answer to the prayers of God's people. Remember that the saints are described as being under the altar. And in verse 7 it says, And I heard the altar saying... That's a way of saying, I heard the saints saying, and the altar doesn't speak. Again, this is symbolic language, but we learned earlier that the saints are underneath the throne. And so he says, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And that's in response to the prayer of God's people in verse 10 of chapter 6, where it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the judgments in the book of Revelation are portrayed as largely coming out of the response to the prayers of God's people as they cry out, How long, O Lord? I think we understand this in another context, in, in the Lord's Prayer. One of the lines in that prayer is, Deliver us from evil. Now, I think many of us understand that to be a personal evil. Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from falling. Deliver us from sinning. Deliver us from going astray. Lord, deliver us from evil. But there is a real sense in which we can say, Lord, deliver us from the evil that is intended against us from those around us. Lord, deliver us from the evil of those who are scheming to cause me to lose my job or want my marriage to break up. Lord, deliver me from evil from those who want to persecute me. And Lord, deliver me from their persecutions. And so the judgments in Revelation, as they're described in chapter 16, are in response to the prayers of God's people. Third, as you read through this text, you understand that divine judgment is horrible. It's not something that we ought to think of lightly and say, oh, it's no big deal. Particularly for one that is walking away from God or has no thought of God or really doesn't give a rip about God, to kind of have it in our mind that the judgments of God are no big deal is to misread the Bible and to misread the extent to which sin is in opposition to God. You get a sense of how bad something is by the nature of the punishment that is meted out against that thing. 
And so if, if, uh, if somebody just gets a slap on the wrist, we say, oh, that's not a big deal. Your little kid goes to touch the snare and you slap his hand. Well, it's not a big deal. But we understand that we put somebody in jail for the rest of their life when they kill another person. You understand that murder is a terrible thing. The severity of the judgment speaks to the severity of the crime. And so we understand as we think about the wrath of God, when we see how severe it is, it should cause us to well up inside and realize, wow, sin is a terrible reality and a terrible thing. And so we see that here as it's described both temporally and eternally as different ways that harmful and painful sores, blood that fouls the salt and fresh water, or scorching heat that falls upon mankind. I was fascinated. I was reading that to go back to Revelation chapter 7 because we wonder where, the, where is the church? And I've been trying to, um, uh, I believe that the church is on the earth as these things happen. I don't believe the church escapes all of the things that are described here because these are describing events of the last days of which the church is part. And in Revelation chapter 7, when the church finally is seen as in heaven, when the 144,000 or the great multitude that nobody can number is in heaven, it says there, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. There's a sense that they are delivered from, um, the, from the difficulties of living in this world. They're not judged by God, but they are in the world as those judgments are poured out. Divine judgment is just. I think we need to wrap our heads around that as people of God. We talked a little bit about this last week, but here again we hear the angel in charge of the waters. Uh, fascinating in itself. Um, as I've been reading through the, the book of Revelation, I've been reminded in a way that I've never really thought about is the, 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 the responsibility of angels in our world. The influence in their, in their government of this world and also the impact of demonic forces in this world. The spiritual world around us is a very real reality. We don't just live in a physical world. We live in a world that is in many ways ruled and guided and waged wars in, in spiritual realities with angels and with demons as we will see a little bit more. And so here we have the angel in charge of the waters. As he's considering the wrath of God, he says, Just are you. O Holy One, who is and who was. And notice there is no who is to come. Why? Because God has now come. We're beginning to describe the last day, the end. He is here now. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Have you ever found yourself saying that? Oh, I hope they get what they deserve. Have you ever found yourself listening to a court judgment and either saying, wow, that's not what they deserve. They sure got off. Or sometimes you actually see, hear a court judgment and say, yeah, they got what they deserve. Justice was served. Why should it be any different in the realm of God and his holiness and his righteousness? There is a recognition that God's way are just and true. And therefore his wrath is just and true. And those who receive it get what they deserve. It fits the crime. And then there's our response or a response to judgment that is described again as those who are under the altar. As they say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And we spoke last week about the importance of us as a people of God, not viewing God's actions through our eyes, but viewing them through his eyes. 
coming to know the God of holiness and righteousness and justice so that when we look at his ways in the world, we aren't confused by them, we aren't bothered by them, we aren't upset by them, but we say, yes, God, just and true and holy are your ways. I want us to just think about for a moment, when we think about these bold judgments, there's a tendency or a temptation to think, well, they just come at the end of the last days, and there is a sense in which the, there's an intensification but the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are spread out over the last days. And there is a sense in which sometimes the judgment of God is only a quarter. Sometimes the judgment of God is a third. But there are times when the judgment of God is full. And when kingdoms are utterly destroyed and nations are utterly wiped out and individuals who have been rebelling against God are finally and justly and fully dealt with even while they have life. I was thinking about the judgment of God on Esau. And Esau was one who sold his birthright and gave up his inheritance. And at that point, the judgment of God came upon him fully because it says a little bit later in the New Testament that Esau sought repentance but could not find it. That's what's described here in the book. Rather than repent at the wrath of God, they cursed God, they, God who had given plagues, and they would not repent. I think about Eli's two boys. Eli the prophet in the Old Testament, he had two boys who were um, just horrible, sinful priests in the temple who, who slept with the women that came to offer their sacrifices and who stole from the sacrifices. And the people said to Eli, you've got to talk to your boys. This isn't right. The scripture says they would not listen to their father because God had determined to put them to death. And so we get a sense that there is a, a, a fullness of God's wrath that comes in these last days as well as at the end of the last days. Pharaoh was another one who, um, who continued to harden his heart, harden his heart. God hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And finally, there was no response at all of softness towards God, but simply one of rebellion against the plagues of God. Judgment is something we ought to think about and think about rightly and think about biblically. The second thing that this text describes for us is Armageddon, the last battle. Both the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl drive us to think of Armageddon in terms of the Euphrates River. Again, a, a symbol uh, of, uh, of behind the, beyond the borders of the Euphrates, the Romans used to fear the Parthenians who would make invasions. And you figure for the Romans to be as scared of somebody, they must have been pretty brutal. But beyond the Euphrates came also those that destroyed Babylon. Cyrus dried up the Euphrates or diverted the Euphrates and defeated Babylon and the people of God were released. But the river Euphrates and its drying up is a symbol, again, of, of the uh, entrance into uh, the world of this final battle, this final army against the people of God. It says that when the sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River, it dries up, making way for the kings of the east. The kings of the east, at least in the Old Testament, were used to describe as the enemies of the people of God, the enemies of Israel. But you notice it's expanded because then he says, also it describes the kings of the whole earth. All the nations who assemble to make war against the people of God. The church, those who belong to God. And behind these kings, behind these assemblies is this demonic horde. The 200 million plus that's described in the sixth trumpet 
And now these three demonic spirits, these unclean spirits that come out of the mouth of the dragon and the false prophet and the beast. What it is saying is that there is an incredible deception that comes amongst the leaders of the world, all the kings of the nation. Such a deception, so subtle is it that it convinces all of them to gather against the people of God. It's an incredible gathering as they assemble together for this battle, the battle, on the great day of the Lord Almighty. It's a global conspiracy that is inspired by hell itself. And so the scripture describes that the route has been prepared through the symbolism of the Euphrates River, giving access and, and allowing all the nations of the earth to gather. It's an army that has been assembled through demonic deception and through subtle deception as the demons, these unclean spirits like frogs, speak out of the mouths of the unholy trinity. And the battlefield is described as Armageddon. It says they assembled them at the place called Armageddon. It's a name known by many around the world. There's, we probably hear our Armageddon in the news or uh, in the media or some news feed at least probably once every month, if not more than that. It's a familiar, uh, a familiar word. I, I think there's a movie called Armageddon. It stars Bruce Willis. I've never seen it. But uh, I know there's a movie called Armageddon. Thank the Lord for Bruce Willis, eh? <laughs> oh, we are so deceived. But what are we to make of Armageddon? Is it a literal place? Is it a symbolic reference? You see, the prophets describe the final battle in and around Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 12 and 14. Not the Valley of Jezreel. And we, the people of God, are the new Jerusalem. Armageddon is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Har Megiddo, which translated means the Mount of Megiddo. Well, there is no such mountain anywhere in all of the Middle East, which seems to suggest to me that this is a symbol. There is a plain in the valley, the valley of Jezreel, but not a mountain. And so it seems to me that what he's pointing at is symbolic. Megiddo was an ancient city located on the plain in the southwest region of Israel. The valley of Megiddo was a strategic place for a multitude of wars. In fact, you'll find, I think somebody has said that there were over 200 battles of consequence that have been fought on the, in the valley of Megiddo lending it to become a lasting and enduring symbol for the final cosmic eschatological battle of all the nations of the world gathered against all the people of God. There'd be no way that you could fit all the armies of the world in that little battlefield in the valley of Jezreel. I don't think geography is the major concern. I think it's the symbol that there is going to be a final gathering of all the forces of this world that follow the beast and the unholy trinity. All those forces will be arrayed against the people of God in a final battle. And in fact, I don't know anywhere in Revelation where that battle is said to actually be fought. Because God comes back and destroys the armies as you read in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. Think about it this way. 
We use famous battles that have occurred in the world to describe things that we're going through. This is my personal Waterloo. We understand when we use that phrase, we're not thinking about the actual battlefield where Waterloo was fought. But we're using that as a symbol for the reality in which we are actually walking through right now when we say, this is my Waterloo. Or we're saying they were in a Donnybrook and we're not referring to an actual fight in an Irish pub. But what we were referring to is just a brawl. And we find ourselves, uh, we describe the situation as a Donnybrook. It's a symbol of a great conflict. I believe that's how we're to understand Armageddon. As a symbol of a great and final conflict of the armies of this world gathered in a raid together against the people of God and our Lord, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a global war which Jesus Christ will bring to an end by his appearing on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. Loved ones, that is how the world will end. The world is not going to end in some fireball, some climatic fireball. The world is not going to end as a meteor slams through our atmosphere and impacts the world. The world is not going to end through a nuclear holocaust or an alien invasion. The world will end when God says, this is the day. And Christ returns. Finally, the disaster of impenitence. I, I want to say this now. This is what I was writing down as I came up um, here, writing on my notes because I don't want to forget it. And I think if I don't say anything now, I'll, I'll forget it. You notice in verse 9 where it says that they were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent or give him glory. Do you know that repentance is an act of giving glory to God? Do you know that as we repent, what we do is acknowledge that God, you are right and your ways are right and my way was rebellious and wrong. We get a picture of this or an image of this in Joshua chapter 7 when, when, we, when, when Israel is defeated and they're defeated because Achan has stolen a bunch of stuff and he's hidden it under his tent and finally the, the lot has been cast and it's narrowed down to Achan and his family and Joshua says to him, now Achan, give glory to God and tell us what you have done. And so even in this last day, they will not give glory to God through repentance and acknowledge that God's ways are right. There will come a time, and it may come in our earthly time, or it may come at the end of the last days when it will be impossible to repent. When our heart has become so hardened, so petrified, that there's no response to God. There is a recognition of God. It says they recognized the plagues were from God. They recognized that this was his doing. But rather than repent, they cursed God. And they would not glorify him through repentance. I think we need to understand something from this text, and in fact from the Bible. That judgment does not soften a heart towards God. Judgment will tell us or will remind us or show us that we deserve what we're getting or it is just and right. But judgment does not soften a heart 
towards God. You can see that in the court system. People who rightly re accept their sentence and they're never repentant, but they recognize that justice has been done. What softens a heart is grace and mercy. What softens a heart is one turning to God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be gracious to me. See, if you find yourself under the heavy hand of God today and you're aware maybe that there's, there's, there's judgment in your life and, and you sense that God is doing something, but you're really on the fence and say, no big deal. Maybe God has allowed you to be here today so that before that heart becomes petrified, you might say, God, I need your gift of repentance. I need you to soften my heart. I need you to show me the sinfulness of my ways. I need you to wash me in the blood of Christ. David expresses it so beautifully. Have mercy on me, O God, after he was found out and having an affair with another man's wife and then killing that man. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He recognized God would be blameless in his judgment. What he realized was he needed God's mercy and grace. Paul describes it the same way. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, there it is again. But, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved because of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. been thinking a lot about Revelation 15.8 last week. Remember how when the seven bowls were being poured out, no one had access to the temple. And I indicated, I think that's because God was finally saying, there is no more time for intercession. The time of judgment has come. You see, loved ones, the world in which we live has a significant pull. It's pull and it's attraction to us is constant and ever morphing, looking for new ways to suck our loyalty away from Christ so that we fall in love with it. The power of sin is great. You feel it, I feel it. We know it every day. The deception of the false prophet is powerful and effective. And the wrath of God is real. I was stunned as I was thinking about verse 15 of chapter 16, right in the middle of the bold judgments, Jesus speaks. It's a, it's a, the placement of it just, it, it's caught me off guard. It, it seems to say, listen, Paul, Christ has not returned yet. In the midst of all these judgments, it's like Jesus saying, okay, now watch out, church. He first speaks to the church, and then I'll have a word to the unrepentant, but to the church, he, he simply says, this is the third of seven blessings. Behold, I am coming like a thief. What's he saying there? All of a sudden, he stops midstream and all these bulge of judgment. He says, church, 
I'm coming like a thief. And then he says a little bit more. He says, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. <laughs> Ethel, you. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just might. Kathy knows where my head's going. It's not a good place. And she's saying, keep quiet, Paul. <laughs> this language of thief. We're, we're familiar with it, aren't we? Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2. He says, we should know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Jesus speaks of it in Luke chapter 12, verse 37 to 39, that he's going to come like a thief. Or, or if the master knew when the thief is coming, he would be awake. It's a call to us to be alert. It's a call to us to be watchful. It's a call to us to be awake. It's a call to us not to be sucked in by the deceptions of the world in which we live. You see, John takes us back to two churches, the church in Sardis and the church of Laodicea. These were both churches that had amazing reputations, but underneath they were a mess. He says to the church in Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And his word to them is, wake up. Take the cold water of the gospel, so to speak, and splash your face with it and wake up. Don't listen to the lies. Don't follow the deceptions. Don't get sucked in by the world around you. Wake up. And even in chapter 3, he says, because I am coming like a thief. And the church in Laodicea was a church that was described as being lukewarm. It was a church that was described as being self-sufficient. I have everything I need. They were living as though they could really get by without God, thank you very much. And Jesus comes back to them and says, listen, you're in big trouble. You need to buy something for your eyes. You need to wash your garments. We need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We need to be full of obedience to the commands of God. We need to hold fast to the testimonies of Christ. So right in the middle of this is a warning to us as the church. Don't be lulled. Don't be seduced. Don't be trapped by the allure of the world. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments spotless. Finally, a word to those who don't yet know Christ. Can you avoid the judgment of God? Absolutely. This is the wonderful message of the Bible. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that we can avoid the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been completed in two ways. First, the wrath of God against all sin that has ever been committed by any who put their trust in Christ was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Remember, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God, and with his last words, he said, what? It is finished. He fully paid the penalty for sins of all who would trust in Christ. And here, the wrath of God against the world is completed. How do we, how does one escape the wrath of God? Through the plan of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful verses as it relates to the good news. He, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made we need to stop there just for a moment. He made. 
See, the plan of salvation, the way back to God is, is not a human creation. It's not a human invention. We would never think of it. In fact, you look at the ways that the world is, has designed to try and get back to God, and they're horrific. Almost everyone is rooted in good deeds of some sort. Almost everyone is rooted in, I'm better than the next one. Almost everyone or others are rooted in, well, I'm going to keep coming back again and again and again and again and again. And maybe one day I'll get it right. What's God's plan? God devised a plan before the foundation of the world that he would deal justly and righteously with rebels' sin. It was this incredible plan of salvation that dealt with his righteousness that abounds with grace, that overflows with mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. While we were yet in enemies, God um, died for us. God made. God has devised a plan. It's his way, and that's what's described in the word of God for us. We have a God who doesn't hate sinners. We have a God who loves them. And it was devised a way whereby which you might come to him and avoid wrath. And how do we avoid wrath? Because it says that he made one who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's an amazing word. It, it, it takes years to wrap your head around it, but it's a simple truth as well. God takes all of our sin. He takes all of my sin, all of my anger, all of my impatience, all of my, 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 my greed, all of my hostility, all of my lust, all of my sin, all of it. Past, present, and future. Every sin that I ever will commit. He takes that and he puts it on Christ. And he doesn't chase, take mine. He takes all of yours. And he takes all of the sins of anyone who will ever trust in him. And he puts it on his son. He credits it to his account. He treats Christ as though he was the sinner. And he punishes Christ. That's the justice of God. He punishes it so you don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live with shame. You don't have to think, well, God's just forgotten and one day he's going to come back and he's going to whack me. Do you live with guilt? Are you ever filled with shame? Guilt be gone. Shame be gone because it's been dealt with through Jesus Christ. It's the most amazing thing that, that we can ever think of. So God is just. And then he says, so that we might become the righteousness of God with him. God took our sin and credits it to Christ so that Christ is punished for it. And God takes Christ's righteousness, which is foreign to us, and he places it on us. So we're credited with the perfection of Christ. It's almost beyond belief. It's almost beyond understanding, but it's true. And then when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect. He sees us as blameless. He sees us as spotless. His wrath is dissipated because it's been poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you avoid the wrath of God. By putting your trust in Jesus Christ and accepting the plan of God for your salvation. Great news. Father, we thank you for our time together today, for our understanding of the word of God. It's a gift, Father. As I look around me and I talk to any random person who's not familiar with you or the word of God and ask them how the world will end, the last thing that any of them will ever say is it will end because God says it's time. 
but in your grace and your mercy to every one of us here today, you have given us an opportunity to hear the truth about how the end will come. To hear the truth about why the world is the way it is. To hear the truth about God who cannot let sin go. To hear the truth about God who has given a way of escape from his wrath for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for truth, Father. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.